Okay, Romans chapter 3. We are finishing the opening section of Romans. We're going to start in verse 9 this morning, go through verse 20. And that really uh, ends the first section of Romans where, where Paul is working to prove the sinfulness and the just condemnation of all mankind. So, so that's where we're headed this morning. Um, and this is really a summation of what he has done since chapter 1, verse 18. Um, first working on the Gentiles and then finishing with the Jews. And uh, now Paul gives a, a summary statement that rightly condemns every single human being that has ever walked the earth except for <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, so let's start in verse 9 and read through this section and then we'll, we'll dive into it. Chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Mm -hmm. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. I think there is a very useful way to approach this passage, and that is to, as a believer... um, to, to for a moment, to, for the time that we're looking at this, to suspend in your minds the truth of your salvation and to see yourself on your own apart from Christ. Uh, that, that's when this passage really has its impact. Um, when you don't read it as just knowledge, just academic truth, but when you see that this passage describes you apart from Christ. You standing alone on your own merits, before God, this is how you are described. Right? This is how God sees you on your own. And when you come to this passage and realize that, its effect, I think, is really driven home. Um, this is what we, we did Romans with the youth group a few years back and went through this whole book. And I told the youth group, starting in chapter 1, verse 18, that for the next you know, six, eight weeks, you are going to be utterly depressed by everything that we teach. And you should be. Um, Because what it has to say in these first few chapters is absolutely uh, just condemning to our our conscience, to our our works, to to everything that we are as a person. You are supposed to come to the end of this section with no hope. Um, And so we want to, even as Christians do that this morning so that we understand the beauty of, of God's grace. Um, so to do, to do that, you have to kind of suspend your, your right understanding of yourself in Christ and just think of yourself on your own before God. Um, and so we'll try to do that this morning. This section is really the, the final nail in the coffin for every human being. Right? It's, this is the summation of the condemnation that Paul has been building since chapter 1, verse 18. 
Um, back then we started, we started to learn that everybody has failed to honor God. Paul continues in Romans 2 talking about your works condemn you before the bar of God's judgment. Um, and then he finishes out in chapter 2 and into chapter 3 saying that the covenant promises and the blessings that have come to certain people, the Jews, uh, do nothing for alleviating this, this reality of condemnation. Right? That that covenant does not help the Jew when it comes to their standing before God. And that's how he starts the section that we're looking at this morning. What then are we Jews any better off? And it's a question that needs to be raised because of how he started chapter 3. He talks about the advantage the Jew has. And that advantage is real. But, before God, when it comes to his judgment of people, the advantage the Jews had is of no value. Right? They are not brought to a different courtroom because they were God's covenant people. Their standard is not different because they were God's covenant people. And so the advantage that they had, that this covenant that God gave them, right, the promises, the blessings, the Messiah coming through them, the advantages they had provide them no benefit when they are coming before God's throne of judgment. Right? <coughs> And Paul's already laid out this accusation. He has already worked to prove this. Um, And so he he comes out with this question saying, are we any better off? And he says, no, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Um, And and that comment right there is a helpful hermeneutic for the previous two chapters, right? What has Paul been doing since Romans 1.18? Well, he's been charging, accusing all of being under sin. He has been working to prove that, and he states that right here. We have already charged that everyone, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Douglas Moo says that the Jews have an unassailable salvation historical advantage. God has spoken to them, and he has given them promises that will not be retracted. But the Jews have no advantage at all when it comes to God's impartial judgment of every person according to his or her works. Every single person, no exceptions, is condemned, charged by Paul, by the Holy Spirit, in Romans 1, 2, and 3, as being under sin. That means that that Jess is included in this. That means that Mike is included in this. That means that Bev is included in this. That every single person here, you and I, are included in this statement. Everyone is under sin. And what does it mean to be under sin? Right? It means to be held captive to its power. Paul meant to and did accuse every single person of sin guilt. Right? He is here in these chapters saying to, to Tony that you are accused and rightly so of sin guilt. Sin enslaves. It rules over. It exercises lordship. In that way, we are under sin. It shows up in specific acts that we commit, think, do. Paul's going to get to that. But in general, it is our slave master. Mm -hmm. That, That which rules over us. The, the 
terribly damning reality is that as sinners, we don't see sin that way. Right? We don't see ourselves as under this slave master. Paul has argued that sin has its tentacles wrapped tightly around us, but, but to us, apart from Christ, that feels like a warm embrace of something familiar and normal and comfortable. Something seemingly pleasurable. On our own, apart from Christ, we, we don't look at our sinful pleasures and lusts and desires and, and see a harsh slave master that we hate. Right? It's something that we readily embrace and enjoy. I think, as, as an unbeliever would think, and I used to think that I was in control of it all. Mm-hmm. And, and so Satan was not in the picture at all. Yeah. And I like, to some extent, I like my life. I like what I'm doing. Right? I certainly enjoy my sin. You know, there are certain aspects of life that people don't like, but our love of sin is not one of them. Right? Sin is something you want and you actively choose. You were made in the image of God to glorify and enjoy Him forever, and instead, you now glorify and enjoy all that is opposed to the One who made you. And this isn't just Paul's opinion, right? This is Paul summing up something he has proven, and then he's going to go into the Old Testament and remind you that the Holy Spirit, through the Old Testament writers, has been saying this for centuries. To the Jew and to the Gentile. And what's important about this is this is what God wants people to know about themselves. This is what you ought to know about yourself apart from Christ. You're not lovable and good and worthy of His love. Right? You're not cute and cuddly and just, you know, this beautiful child that has made a few mistakes. That is not how we are seen in the eyes of a holy God. And so Paul heads into the Old Testament to confirm the universality and to demonstrate the variety of sin that characterizes humanity. So he does that with with six, at least six Old Testament passages. Um, If you're looking for a logical breakdown to this, this, this section of quotes. Um, I say he quotes at least six Old Testament passages because whenever you look at the New Testament quotation of the Old, there's often multiple passages that you can go back to and find reference to what the New Testament author is saying. Um, it's not always clear exactly what section they're quoting. Sometimes they're using the Septuagint, um, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew, and so it's not a direct quote all the time, and then sometimes under the inspiration of the Spirit, the New Testament author will, author will shift a word or two to reapply the meaning in the old to their usage in the new. Um, and so, finding out exactly where the quotes came from is not always the easiest. Um, but even so, in verses 10 and 12 here in Romans 3, um, Paul is quoting from Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. In verse 13, He's quoting Psalm 5, 9, and then Psalm 140, verse 3. 
Um, verse 14, he comes from Psalm 10, verse 7. And then in 15 through 17, he's going back to Isaiah 59, verses 7 to 8. And then in verse 18, he's going to Psalm 36, verse 1. Um, the structure breakdown is more evident. Right? The Verses 10 to 12, it's the universality of sin. The no one, none, no one seeks. Those phrases are encompassing all of humanity. Um, if you look at verses 13 and 14, we're looking at sins of speech. Right? Things we say, even applying to things that we would think that then give birth to our speech. Uh, verses 15 to 17 cover sins of action. So you can see he's kind of working his way in, in sections in his condemnation here. And then verse 18 sums it up, um, kind of is the final parentheses, and it comes back to that root cause and kind of bookends this section. Um, he starts off saying, No one is righteous, or none is righteous, no, not one. And then he finishes with, There is no fear of God before their eyes. So there's that again, that kind of universal closing to this section. Um, and that, that also should remind us of the beginning of this whole section back in chapter 1, verse 18, um, where it talks about, let's see here, verse 21, although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. Um, that, that also ties into this idea there is no fear of God before their eyes. So, so three, chapter 3, verse 18 really does a good job of summing up what Paul has been saying all the way from chapter 1 on. So we can take this section by section. The first one being that sin is universal. It applies to everyone. And Paul says that in verses 10 and, 12, or 10 and 11. No one is righteous. Sorry, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside that together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And you are not the exception. Right? Paul, Paul takes great pains to say the same thing again and again and again so that you do not sit here this morning and say, yes, but. I understand that. However, that's not an option. It's not available. None is righteous, no, not one. And what does unrighteousness receive from God? Condemnation, right? Romans 1.18 The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all manner of unrighteousness. That is what it deserves. That is what you deserve sitting here this morning. It's eternal hell. It's unending punishment. It's horrific pain. right? It's, it's weeping and gnashing of teeth. God's acceptance of you rests on whether or not you are righteous. Paul says that in chapter 2, starting in verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So if you take that, especially verse 8, 
and bring it over into chapter 3, verse 10, 11, and 12, what do you get? You get condemnation. You get wrath. Because if you are somebody who is self-seeking and you don't obey the truth, but you obey unrighteousness, and that brings wrath and fury, and then you go to chapter 3 and you realize that no one is righteous. No one seeks for God. No one understands. No one does good. Bringing those two together makes you realize that in chapter 2, he wasn't giving you the way that you can earn salvation. He was saying, this is the standard. Oh, and by the way, every single human being does not meet this standard. Right? God accepts you based on your righteousness and you are not righteous. Not one. Not a single person. This righteousness is not yours. I know a lot of you, you're nice, you're kind, you're not righteous. One of um, John Piper's quotes, and I'm going to paraphrase it, um, it's like a, a pirate on a ship who saves someone's life. Um, they did what we might call a good deed. Mm-hmm. However, they're still a pirate. Correct. That will not change. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I think just looking back at how the thought process is going on, um, in the unsaved person, they don't do good things for the glory of God. Right. It's impossible for them to do it for that reason. Yep. And that's what's required. Mm-hmm. Yep. Every good deed that an unsaved person does is unrighteous in God's sight. Yep. Yep. They're not as bad as they could be, but there's not an ounce of righteousness in their in them, right? In their actions, in their, in their words. Right? What is required for God to accept something that someone does as good or as righteous? It has to be a believer is doing it and it's God's will he wants done. Okay. Motivation Okay, motivation, yeah. So... It has to be the right act. Right? It's going to be righteous. It needs to be the right thing. It needs to be done with the right motive. Right? It needs to be done without selfishness. Right? It needs to be done in line with the first and the second commandments. So every ounce of that person in that moment, in order for this to be a good, righteous deed, Every ounce of that person needs to be doing it with a heart and a mind and a soul that loves God and is loving God perfectly, 100% in that moment, and then doing the deed in the perfect, righteous way Mm -hmm. that loves others Mm -hmm. and pleases God for His glory. That's all. So another one. Yeah. Yeah. You, you never do that on your own. Mm-hmm. Never. Mm-hmm. Jeremiah thirteen twenty three says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin mm. or the leopardous spots? You may you also may do good who are accustomed to do evil. Yeah. So they may do good, but it has no salvific 
merits. Mm -hmm. There's no uh, divine acceptance right. for the act. I mean, if, if a child asks a parent to give them a piece of bread, will they give them a stone? Mm -hmm. Jesus says, you are accustomed to do evil. Can do good. You'll give your child what, what they... You may be a loving parent to your child. Yeah. But before God, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Amen. God can rightly look at every single one of us on our own and say, you have never pleased me. You've never glorified my name. And it's the the horrible thing is this is sin that we enjoy, right? Like sin is not ugly, sin is not unattractive to us. That's the point of temptation. That's why temptation is hard because sin is attractive because we like something about it. It's just. It's depressing to consider these realities. And it should be. No one does good, not even one. Not even one. And this is the ultimate good in God's sight. Nobody does that. Pat, you don't do that. You don't stand righteous before God. John, you can't bring a single act before God and say, I... I did this one right. What about your speech? Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. It's like we start you know, deep in the, the parts of speaking and then start to work our way out. So you have an open grave at the base. You have... Tongues of deception further up, and then you have the venom of asps under their lips, and the mouth is just full of curses and bitterness. So from start to finish, it, it is wretched and depraved. Does your every word build others up and seek to give them grace, as it talks about in Ephesians? Does your every word do this? We think about how easy and how often we can gossip, um, tear somebody down, make fun of somebody, insult somebody. If you do it to, to their face, you can be clearly condemned by others as somebody who sins in, in their speech, right? If you are somebody who verbally assaults people openly and frequently, it's, it's obvious. But maybe you do it behind their back. Just to make yourself feel better. As you and a friend get together and talk about the sins of others. Or maybe you do it online. That is just an awful, awful place for sin to so easily crop up. It's like the... <coughs> behind the wheel syndrome uh, you, you will say things think things do things behind the wheel of a car that you would never do face to face with the person in the other car 
You know, and there's there's some sort of safety and just anonymity makes oh, the mind very brave. Man, they call it keyboard courage. There it is, right? As long as there's a wall where you know that other person can't reach through and grab you or punch you, you you feel emboldened to say and do things that you would never do otherwise. <coughs> Sarcasm or, or a, a, a phrase that looks like a compliment but is actually an yeah. insult. Yeah. Wow, you're so smart. Yeah. yeah. You do this. At the very least, I know you do it in your own mind. How do we know that? Because I know my mind. There's never benefits or righteousness given to the person who is a unbroken rotten egg. Right? Some people are out there with all of their sin for everyone to see and smell. And some of you are very well kept rotten eggs. Unbroken and rotten to the core. So maybe all these things happen in your own mind and you never say them because that would just be... Well, that would be wrong. But you just it, it just brews in your mind. Right? The grave is in your mind. You... The things you want to say run through your mind and you enjoy them for a moment. And, but you don't ever say them. You, you, this doesn't give you comfort. Right? You don't get to, to read this passage and say, well, I don't say those things. Right? What about the things you say to those that really deserve a good tongue lashing? Right? Do you feel more justified when the person that you want to insult has earned it. Right? There's, no, there's no qualifications in Romans 3. You know, there's no, well, it's okay to be an open grave when. Um, and when, when we avoid speaking those things um, in our mind, like out loud that are in our mind, it's not because we have any particular love for those people. Mm. It's because we have love for ourselves and our own image and our own sense of self-righteousness. Yeah. So even the fact that we avoid, um, you know, speaking these things sometimes yeah. is an evidence of, you know, our pervasive sinfulness. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. And that's just... You know, horizontal relationships. What, what about the times that we want to complain to God? Right? Or or ang- show anger to Him? Uh, what about the times that we are given blessings and we just don't thank Him? You know? That's one of the, the sins of Romans 1. You know, they do not honor God as God or give thanks to Him. Right? That there is not just these sins of, all, of commission, the things that we do that are wrong, but rather those things we ought to do that we don't. Right? All those times that we pray and ask for God to help or give strength or heal, and He does, and we continue on without returning to Him with a thankful heart. You know, like the one leper who was cleansed. We're more so like the other nine that keep going. 
glad for the blessing and almost giving off the attitude to God that, well, this is what you should have done anyway. The open grave speaks of inner corruption that is deadly. The deception speaks of how easy it is for us to speak falsely or to flatter uh, in the way that we talk to others. The the poison of a snake speaks of a, a sneaky and destructive nature to our speech. We could spend a lot of time talking about the sneaky ways that we speak to others. You know, the way we highlight our good or diminish our our bad, the way we're not 100% honest. I see this so often in myself. It comes off, comes out at work many a times where if something is not going great on a project, I'm going I'm not going to highlight that aspect of the project to my boss. But I'll highlight the other aspects that I've done well. It's pride self-preservation. Prideful self-preservation. Full of curses and bitterness. And it's, it's not occasional. It's not every now and then. It's not 10%. Tom Schreiner says, the universal dimension of sin is nowhere more evident than human speech. What about actions? Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. It's interesting when you go back to these Old Testament quotes in their context, they're very often applied to Israel's enemies. These are things that the psalmist would say about Israel's enemies. And Israel would read those psalms and say, Amen. Yes, that is the Amalekites. That is the Philistines. That is the people that are opposed to God's people. Opposed to us. But Paul takes these verses and he, he, he pulls them from that context and says, this is you, Jew. This is, this is certainly the Gentiles. That's the low-hanging fruit. That's the easy one to condemn. But he takes these and he says, you people of God, this is you too. So it would have been a, a very shocking thing for the Jews to hear these verses applied to them. And that can be the way it is for some of us too. You know, growing up, if, if you grew up in the church, um, I, I don't know, I don't think any of us are, are Jewish. You might have some Jewish background, I'm not sure. Um, but I know all of us didn't grow up in a strict Jewish covenantal home. Um, But if, if you did grow up in a, a Christian home, you can almost feel like the Jew would have, you know, growing up in a Jewish home. Um, where, where we are God's privileged people. You know, we're, we're a Christian family. You know, he, God has more approval for us than the people that rampantly live a sinful lifestyle. So this is good for us. Because I think it's, it can be easy for people that grow up in a Christian home to feel like a Jew did back then. Um, somewhat privileged. Somewhat like God almost should love us. 
And a lot of these actions we can't really identify with readily. Being swift to shed blood, having ruin and misery in our paths, not knowing the way of peace. It is very instructive what Jesus says about the heart that would do the things that other people do. You know, when he, when he condemns not only the act of murder, but also the hate in the heart that led to that act. Right? Or the, the lust in the heart that leads to the act of adultery. That is very instructive when it comes to verses like this. Um, as far as I know, nobody here has shed blood. But your heart is a heart that is willing to shed blood. Your heart, in many ways, over the years, has desired to shed blood. And if that sin in your heart went to its full extent, you would have done it. Is there a lack of peace in your actions? It is so easy for us to inflict destruction and misery on other people. Paul is talking about violent and savage behavior. You know, anger, as it were, boiling over into actions. And maybe that's another way to drive this home to our hearts. Are, are we people that easily let anger boil over and cause us to do things? like I said before if the egg just simply hasn't broken your wretchedness is internal and and well hidden but it's just as damnable you don't get brownie points for not letting that sin come out and affecting your actions as fully as it could there, there's no room for comfort in this passage. You don't come to the actions and say, well, I haven't done those, so I must be doing a little bit better. And Paul's point is not, not to give hope. You ought not have hope in your self-control when it comes to your actions. You can't hide behind these verses saying, well, I haven't done right, those specific things. And verse 18 sums it up for us. There is no fear of God before their eyes. It goes back to the root. Idolatry is at its root a lack of fearing God. To fear God, to reverence Him, to give Him the, the glory that is due His name. To submit yourself to Him. Sin is completely opposed to that. Right? Sin is giving reverence and, and yourself over to some other God. Right? Sin is, is very... Truly, at its root, a lack of fearing God. And it has terrible, terrible consequences for our lives on this earth. But it is fundamentally theological in nature. Our failure to honor God drives all of our sin. Our failure to fear God drives all of our sin. This is every single one of us. There is no fear of God before your eyes. On your own, apart from Christ, this is you. There's no, I'm a decent person, I will likely go to heaven. It's not even close. This is a blowout of epic proportions. You have no chance. 
There's no comeback at the end of this. Right? There is no hope. There is no hope. Paul is obviously really going after the Jewish people here. Because right? they are the people who would most readily feel like they had hope. And so he's clearly bringing them to their rightful place before God. We're Gentiles. Paul doesn't spend as much time on us because it's obvious. The, the Jews had reason to think they might be accepted before God. The Gentiles didn't. It, it was just clear as day. Romans 2, verse 8. For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Back in verse 6 of chapter 2. He will render to each according to his works. Right? He will render to each according to his works. Romans 1.18 The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So, feel the weight of Romans 3, the passage we're studying, and then consider what Paul's already said. The wrath of God comes against unrighteousness and ungodliness. You're going to be judged according to your works. If you obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So the rhetorical question is, what hope do you have? You have none. You have none. And I know there's this Christian hope that is that springs up in us, right? It hasn't come yet. We're not there yet. You don't have hope on your own before God. You just don't. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. And this is a very effective argument that Paul is using to, to argue from the greater to the lesser. That the law, obviously, was given to the Jews. It was spoken to the Jews for the Jews. And so what he says there in the beginning of verse 19 is, is fairly obvious. Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. The purpose is interesting. So the whole world may be held accountable before God. The law wasn't for the Gentiles, and yet it served to condemn them along with the Jews. And that makes sense because Paul's arguing from the greater to the lesser. If the law comes to the Jews, the privileged people of God, with the blessings, with the promises, with the best chance of any human beings on earth, and it condemns them, 
then, then what's going to happen when the same standard is applied to those that have no advantage? <laughs> they really don't have any hope. The law came not to provide hope and salvation. There was a dark reality that came with the law. The law came to expose and condemn. Right? It's, it's every every Jew should have felt this. And of course, in their sinfulness, they turned it around and tried to find ways that they could obey it and keep it and thoughts that, that it provided them a way to be saved. And it didn't. It came to give them a clear understanding of their re- reality as a sinner before God. Absolutely condemned. And the result is that every mouth may be stopped. So the picture is the defendant before the judge and the defendant has nothing to say. Right? You, Larissa, would be speechless before God on your own. Nothing to say. Tom Schreiner says, the state of an accused person who cannot reply at the trial because he has exhausted all possibilities of refuting the charge. I completely exhausted every possible way out. Tom Schreiner also says that if the Jews who had the privilege of being God's covenantal and elect people could not keep the law, then it follows that no one, including the Gentiles, can. Again, the Gentiles are the low-hanging fruit. Dave, we're in Romans 3. Thank you. So you are before God with nothing to say with condemnation for your soul on full display. Nothing to say. And there's nothing you can do. Paul finishes that off in verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So you you can't even do something to help yourself out. To begin with, none of your works are righteous. And secondly, works can't undo works. If if somebody murders their family and then is driving away from their house and the cops find them and pull them over and they say to the cop, "But, but I didn't speed when I was driving. Is there any... Is there any hope for their situation? Does that compliance with the law change the wretchedness of their sin? Right? So, so you're before God as an unrighteous, unholy, wretched sinner. And there's no way to undo that. You don't have an ability to do a good work that cancels out a bad. Right? Sin deserves judgment. It deserves condemnation. And, and a sin that occurs 
at this moment is not undone by a good work that occurs at another moment. This is a huge misconception that so many people in our world have. It's the, the scales of, of justice perception of judgment. Right? That if my good outweighs my bad, how does that make any sense? Your bad is still there. It, you haven't done anything to erase it. If you sin until 11 a.m. in the morning and then you do good until midnight, we still have to deal with your sin. So by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. You can't undo because the record is still blemished. But it's not like we have good works available to counteract, counteract our bad. It's almost a, almost a sarcasm of the passage. The, the standard is righteousness. But we have none. We, we can't even argue percentages and scales and my good outweighing my bad. You don't have good to outweigh your bad. We've already been through that. We've, we've spent three chapters on that. You, you don't have something else on the good side. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. If you're not seeking for Him, how can you please Him? You can't. The law gives us no hope. It gives us no defense. And if you disagree, you don't understand the law or you don't understand your sin. And so we're left with a lot of knowledge that confirms our sinfulness and our right condemnation. And I feel this in myself. There is still something in me that wants to say, but, but, I, but there's, I can do... There's something in me that wants to find a way to justify myself. And Paul says, no. You have no way. Nothing. Nothing. You, you, right here, this morning, sitting in the seat, you are before God on your own with a heap of sin that you wanted to commit. And now you're trying to find a way out. Which, which, by the way, shows your sinfulness because you don't even care about the righteous justice of God and the rightness of punishing your sin. If, if you were actually going to be righteous, you would say, yes, I deserve your justice. Your glory is more important than me. You should condemn me. But instead, we stand before God trying to find a way out, which again shows how sinful we are because we're more concerned about us than Him. You're desiring to save your own skin rather than give Him the honor He deserves. The righteous mindset is to stand before God and say, God, condemn me to hell forever. I deserve it. That's the response from the end of this section. 
I deserve it. So is that where you see yourself? Because that's the only option Paul gives. That's the only option God gives. You deserve this. And there's no way out. Um, I guess as you're illustrating today's topic, I'm brought to thinking about the two thieves on the cross and how the one speaks to the other and says, you know, do not fear God. Like everything that you're describing so beautifully is illustrated. And I'm so thankful that that story has been recorded for us in the scriptures. Where, you know, the one thief obviously is trying to save himself and, you know, shouting out to the Lord. And the other is so broken. I find even in evangelism, it's, a, it's such a beautiful... I don't know, Pastor Gary preached about it a couple months back and it's still nourishing me because mm. people immediately will say, well, I don't go to church. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I believe, yeah. I pray, but I don't, I don't do this or I don't do that. And it's immediately about self and, yeah. you know, to pull up the thief there. And so the thief never got the opportunity to do right or the yeah. thief never got the opportunity to go to church or synagogue. Mm. What, what made him different than the other one? the beauty of going through this passage and seeing ourselves apart from Christ. The beauty is to feel the, the weight and the sorrow and the wretchedness of our sin. And then to look at verse 21. And the first word is, but. That shouldn't be there. Right. I think people reveal the misunderstanding of this when they apologize, like to me, for example, when they swear, or, you know, drop a few f bombs in front of me, or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm like I don't, and I just tell people, you can't possibly offend me. Mm-hmm. You, you know, and it's that sense of, I'm kind of glad they feel that, not not for me, but they like to use that. It's not always possible to say. You know, talk about that sense of personal. You know, wrongdoing that you just experienced because it's not, you know, any me. You can't, you don't know me. You know what I mean? Yeah. If you knew me, you'd be like, I can say that for any no problem. Yeah. But it does reveal something about people's general understanding of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't want to. I really don't. Yeah. No, I hear you. I don't. And the small conviction that people feel needs to be just exploded into this kind of conviction where you are just on your face silent without hope and then the word of God says but and we'll cover that next week but that is the most beautiful transition in the Bible it happens multiple times sinners broken fully condemned and the Lord God says but He doesn't finish the story there. Your status of no hope doesn't remain there. God Himself says, but now. Um, for the 
believers, this is also like so important to consider um, because this is the one of the answers that complacency in mm. the Christian lens. Because if you don't realize that you're like this, you can grow comfortable realizing mm. that you know, well, I have good things in me, um, and so you don't strive after getting good things from God all the time. But when you realize that without God, this is this is who you are, mm. it pushes us believers when we meditate on this to grow and pursue God more and more because we know that without Him we are wretched we don't see God we are throat is an open grave when we did as a youth group we spent an entire week on the two words but now in Romans 3.21 and it was so worth it because that transition is but we have to realize how illogical that is. It just shouldn't be there. There's no reason for God in us, in justice, to, to put that shift into the story. But out of the overflow of His love for sinners, He says, but now. It's incredible. So, close in prayer and go upstairs rejoicing in this. Heavenly Father, I, I pray that we would feel the weight of, of our just condemnation on our own without Christ. And I pray that we would be reminded this morning as we worship. Father, it's, it's so easy to sing songs that praise You for Your grace and mercy and love because we've sung them so many times before, but... God, I pray that they would carry a new weight this morning as we remember how great the gulf was that you spanned. That we might just rejoice with full hearts because you did not end the story justly condemning sinners. But you did something greater and and you did something that we could never have deserved or even wanted to ask for. God, may we worship You so fully because of what You have done. In Christ's name, Amen.